Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome, history friends, delegates all, to episode 15 of the Delegation Game. Last week we ended on something of an incredible cliffhanger, as Woodrow Wilson appeared to have succumbed to the intense pressures of life in the London Conference. We will deal with the implications of Wilson's episode today, but by and large, our episode will be dominated by the undertaking known as the Clemenceau Directive, the long-running plan between the French and Poles above all to arrange an invasion of Bolshevik Russia from Warsaw. Conveniently for me, the Polish Borders Treaty has passed, which makes everything a little less ridiculous in the East. It also makes things clearer for Poland's delegates and her neighbours, and clarity is something in short supply in this game. All delegates should be excited and encouraged because this right here is the first example of a truly different outcome to the real-life Paris Peace Conference that they have helped create. Unlike in our delegation game timeline, of course, the Big Three essentially left Russia to its own devices once it became apparent that white Russian forces under Admiral Kolchak could not eke out a victory. Any support that the white Russians did muster came far too late, but here in our delegation game timeline, thanks to the underhanded actions of the Bolsheviks, above all in striking down the war hero, Georges Clemenceau, support for an anti-Bolshevik intervention into Russia remains at an all-time high. Guided first and foremost by the desire for revenge, the French and their Polish allies are also bolstered by the addition of several Tiger Brigades, constitutive volunteers from loads of different countries. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to learn how you'll be able to shape the fate of this intervention through your vote. Our episode is pulled largely between three different scenes. The Skeleton Conference, which remains in London, the deeply disconcerting confines of Woodrow Wilson's private chambers, and the triumphant, ambitious atmosphere of the parade ground at Warsaw, where the Council for Russian Freedoms meets to bless the fulfilment of the Clemenceau Directive at long last. 
Without any further ado then, I will now take you all to that scene in London, where a few delegates remain to hold the fort as the main event takes place in the Polish capital. Signor Orlando, I would really appreciate it if you would get to the point. Orlando bit his lip. He wasn't sure if Lloyd George was deliberately trying his patience, or if he was merely engaging in some spirited teasing. The Prime Minister's face certainly gave nothing away. They had been here in this room for several hours now, and the conversation had been remarkably revealing. It is incredible what one can achieve when not burdened by the unfortunate opinions of others, Lloyd George said. There was no confusion over who he meant. The American delegation had been thrown into chaos over the previous week, ever since Woodrow Wilson had been taken down by a paralysing stroke. As the Vice President, Thomas Marshall, seemed poised to take over much of his duties back in the United States, the real question was who could assume his responsibilities now in London? I am sure we will gain a great deal more clarity by the end of the day, Prime Minister, Orlando said. It was known that the American delegates were meeting in Wilson's chambers later that afternoon for the express purpose of nominating the team, or individual, who would carry the load. Are we certain, gentlemen, that the President is completely incapacitated? René Massigli asked. From the information I have been sent, sir, the prognosis is grave indeed, Fitzwilliam replied, adding, The poor man has been suffering with debilitating headaches for some time now, I fear this is merely the logical outcome of so many years of stress and fighting. Vittorio Orlando stood up to stretch his legs. The room where they had been doing business was one of the finest the Anabay Hotel had to offer. It was pleasant indeed to reside in this hotel now that so many other delegates were absent. The place had virtually lost two-thirds of its residents, and the procession of all these delegations had made its way to Warsaw, where the ceremony effectively blessing the intervention of the Clemenceau Directive into Russia would be held. Vittorio Orlando strolled over to the window, where he could see swans lazing about in the large lake feature outside. He couldn't help but envy their freedom. Gentlemen, Orlando said, as I was attempting to explain earlier on, I have received news of the Middle East. It seems that the planned creation of an Arab kingdom in the region has not gone off without a hitch. Indeed, unfortunately, there appears to be a situation akin to war there. Orlando walked back to the centre of the room and placed his leathered hands on the large, shiny oak table before exhaling. I fear that our great work will be undermined terribly if we as allies cannot formulate a unitary policy. What of that other theatre in the Middle East, Signor Orlando? Fitzwilliam asked. To what do you refer, Sir Arthur? The confused Italian premier replied. Fitzwilliam then rose from his seat and unfurled a map of Asia Minor. Observe, if you will, Your Excellency, how the current Greek landing in the region of Smyrna has the potential to greatly upset the delicate balance in the whole of the Middle East. I have heard reports of terrible crimes conducted by Greek soldiers in the region. If we are not careful, this initiative has the potential to ignite the entire Muslim world against us. Perhaps the disturbances in Palestine and around Mecca are just the beginning? Would a peacekeeping force be available to send to the affected regions? Would it be wise, perhaps, to temper the ambitions of our Greek friend to ensure that Anatolia does not unravel as well into a state of civil war? Previous arrangements to partition the region of Anatolia will be severely jeopardised if we do not arrive at a solution soon. Fitzwilliam then sat down and Lloyd George nodded at him in recognition. It was convenient to be able to rely on officials like Fitzwilliam to carry the load. Lloyd George wondered how Woodrow Wilson had managed to last so long, taking upon himself the burdens of all meetings and virtually all decisions. The situation in Greece did indeed present a problem, particularly if the British control over the Straits was to be maintained. Would it be possible to welcome in the Greek Premier now? René Massigli asked. As far as I'm aware, he did not travel to Warsaw with many of the other delegates. That might be wise, Lloyd George said. But first, I believe we are to receive a deputation from the Austro-Germans. Vittorio Orlando sighed. I've heard quite enough of these troublemaking fellows, Orlando said. Why do we give our enemies so much time and space to spread their propaganda and undermine our peaceful mission? I understand your concerns and I share your frustration, Signor Orlando, Miss Eagley said. But according to the terms of all civilised conferences, while we do not owe our former foes an audience, we are bound by all considerations of 
decency and humanity to consider their woes. Orlando sighed loudly once again. Very well, bring them in. The room suddenly became a great deal more crowded. The large oak bookcases, lined with red velvet, hugged the walls and made the conference room appear more luxurious and homely. The carpet on the floor was soft to the touch and threatened to absorb even the most delicate of footprints. Above their heads, a new chandelier hung, sparkling and gleaming as the sun's rays shone on its individual jewels. Fitzwilliam found that when he was bored, he lost himself staring into the endlessly reflecting lights that seemed to bounce off it. But now there was work to be done. The large oak table which dominated the centre of the room now had four new occupants as the Allied delegates sat on the right side and the Austro-German delegates sat facing them on the left side. The Austrian Chancellor Karl Renner was staring a hole in Vittorio Orlando, who returned the favour. Keeping those two men apart would be a difficult task indeed. Philip Scheidemann had also built up a reputation as something of a loose cannon, and Paul von Leno Vorbeck had made it abundantly clear that he had little time for his dramatic entrances or pompous expressions. Why did the President send me such a buffoon? Fitzwilliam had once overheard the old Prussian general whisper to himself, but now von Leto Vorbeck would have to work with this buffoon if he wished to take advantage of this situation. Von Leto Vorbeck got up to speak. Gentlemen, I thank you for receiving us. My peers from Austria and Germany wish to impress upon you the urgency of our mission. Reports from home have not been positive. I have it on good authority that men march in the streets demanding bread, and women sell their bodies and their children in order to acquire it. You do not have any love for me or my colleagues, but please do not let the events of the recent war blind you as to your humanity. The traits of mercy, compassion and decency must not be extinguished by this recent war. What is it that you want, General? Vittorio Orlando asked abruptly, no sense of compassion in his voice. Signor, we want merely to be in a position to feed ourselves. Currently the British blockade hampers our ability to bring in food from across the world. People are dying in the streets, and their hearts are hardening against sensible politics. I fear if much more starvation takes root, we will lose the country to Bolshevism. Orlando coughed a few times, and René Massigli intervened. Gentlemen and General, you surely know that the blockade is a precaution which we have taken in the event of war. To cease with the naval blockade now will place Germany in a position to heal herself, and prepare for, perhaps, another chapter in this conflict. The last thing I or my colleagues want is to see German people suffer and die, but we want, even less, to provide opportunities for the war to be restarted by some backroom scheme. Monsieur Messigli, von Leto Vorbeck replied, on my honour as a soldier, my countrymen are in no fit state to restart the war. Please understand, the German people are tired and thoroughly depressed. This is a desperate plea which requires urgent attention. Philip Scheidemann then rose from his chair and bellowed, Gentlemen, my country is in ruins. Our politics dead. Our future dead. Our people dead. Do you wish to kill Germany or to defeat her? If you wish to kill her, then proceed as you were. But know that Germany will rise again, and the phoenix, which rises from the ashes, will have but one goal in its heart. Revenge. Stop this madness now, before you create in German hearts and minds a burning hatred of all things democratic and good. Scheidemann then left the room, and Karl Renner, taking the opportunity, rose from his chair to speak. Gentlemen, I apologise for my colleague, but I do not mince words either. Austria is burning and in desperate need of aid. Our neighbouring states in Hungary and the Balkans continue to wage private wars against one another, and our Austrian state, so seriously reduced, faces utter calamity if it is not relieved soon. Please, end the blockade, so that my countrymen can finally imagine life after the war once again. Doing so will win you no strategic victory, it is true, but it will win the adulation of the Austrian and German people, which is surely worth far more in the circumstances. Lloyd George stroked his chin, and Vittorio Orlando looked left to right at his French and British colleagues before answering Karl Renner's challenge. The Austrian Chancellor must bear in mind that trust is not so easily given. We require some form of guarantee, and yet this cannot be given until the peace treaty with Austria and her neighbours, let alone with Germany, is finally concluded. What guarantee do we have that you will not simply sell these foodstuffs to power back up your war effort? 
Carl Renner couldn't hide his frustration at this idea. Signor Orlando, believe me when I tell you that when your countrymen die on the streets, little matters other than feeding them and saving them from such a terrible fate. We are defeated, and we accept our defeat. We do not want to fight any more. We want to eat, and only to eat. Please. Fitzwilliam then decided to intervene before tempers flared up. Gentlemen of Austria and Germany, thank you for this presentation. We will in due course consider your appeal. I believe there are grounds for lifting the blockade, or at least permitting some food to get through. Herbert Hoover continues to work for this task, but it is understandable that he has had his work so cut out for him. We will consider your appeals, and we will deliver our verdict as soon as next week, if not before. If we cannot agree to lift the blockade, then we will reach a solution to this acute problem. You have my word. With that, the Germans left the room, and Venizelos, the Greek premier, who must have been waiting outside, came in straight after them, accompanied by the Spanish premier, Antonio Mora. Orlando raised his eyebrow. What kind of presentation was the Greek premier about to give? Gentlemen, I trust you have met my friend, Signor Mora, premier of Spain. I heard you wished to talk with me about the situation in Smyrna. I know very little about that, save what you know yourselves. What I do know is that Greece wishes to desperately ensure its position in the Mediterranean, and I have been told by my Spanish friend here that the Pact of Cartagena holds great potential in this regard. Orlando then spoke up. Monsieur Venizelos, thank you for arriving so quickly and for bringing our esteemed friend. Italy is greatly perturbed by the aforementioned pact, largely because it threatens to undermine her carefully arranged balance in the Balkans. Fitzwilliam then interjected. Signor Mora, I was not aware that you had been acquainted with Monsieur Venizelos. If you wish to expand the Pact of Cartagena to include Greece alongside France, Britain and Spain, then perhaps these negotiations would be better conducted in private. Now see here, gentlemen, Orlando said. Italian interests must not be undermined by secret pacts such as these. Now I have avoided talking about this pact out of courtesy to my friends present in the room, but further discussion must include Italy, if that pact's major goals include the challenging of Italian interests in the Balkans. Antonio Mora then spoke up, his voice carrying some measure of authority. Forgive me, gentlemen, I did not wish to make matters awkward today. I merely expressed to my Greek friend that I was sure that Spain and Greece would have common interests in our favourite sea. Signor Orlando, please do not interpret the interests of this pact in a negative light. We only want to restore peace and a lasting arrangement to peace in the troublesome Balkans. Surely you appreciate the nobility of this task. Orlando replied, Signor Mora, this region is far too sensitive to be placed under the control of external parties. I fully appreciate your good intentions, but Italy is governing the ceasefire arrangement with Belgrade just fine. The Serbian king has even agreed to cede independence to formerly dominated Balkan states like Montenegro, Slovenia and Croatia. To turn back the clock and place these states under the Serbian dictatorship again will be tantamount to an atrocity. We must consider the rights of self-determination in the region. Mora sighed loudly. Signor Orlando, Spain does not wish to undermine Italian security. We only wish to ensure that peace will be maintained in the Balkans. Perhaps some peacekeeping force will be useful for maintaining order? Fitzwilliam then interjected. Gentlemen, so long as the situation in the Balkans holds, I believe we should wait the return of Monsieur Felix Kalander from Warsaw. His experience in mediating disputes such as these would be invaluable. Very well, René Massigli said. If all are agreed to postpone the discussion till next week at least, we shall hopefully arrive at a solution to this troublesome Balkan question. Orlando looked around the room and realised that he had very little to lose by agreeing to talks which he could later ignore anyway. Very well, gentlemen, Orlando said. Consider Italy willing to keep the issue up for discussion. I should say that it has not escaped my notice that American troops have moved to occupy several points in Germany and Belgium. I am not sure what you and your American friends are planning, Prime Minister, but you cannot exclude Italy from these plans forever. Please remember that an element of urgency is essential. I cannot guarantee how long the treacherous Serbs will hold the peace. Lloyd George then interjected. Indeed, Signor Orlando, it seems we have no choice sometimes other than to trust the normally treacherous. The situation in Belgium and along the Rhine continues to develop, and after liaising with our American friends in the area, 
it seemed to make the most sense for the sake of stability to intervene there. Just as Italian arms moved into the crumbling Yugoslav state, so we have moved to prevent the breakdown of law and order in such a disadvantaged region which the recent war has left so devastated and without even basic amenities. Banditry can often emerge in such situations, particularly in the atmosphere of want which this war has created. Orlando raised an eyebrow once again. I see, Prime Minister. Well, please give my condolences to Monsieur Imans if you see him. The state of his country is an unfortunate case indeed. I would also urge a decision to be made in Palestine, where it seems Jewish interests have flocked to establish some kind of Jewish state. Lloyd George then interrupted him. We heard of these developments, Signor Orlando. I've also been informed that Italian arms have been supplied to the Jewish settlers. I do hope these rumours do not prove to be true. Such a policy could engender instability in the region for the foreseeable future. Of course, Prime Minister, Orlando replied. Since the very last thing Britain or France would ever sponsor is an ill-conceived project for partitioning far-off regions, I understand your concern. Rest assured, Rome is doing all it can to get to the bottom of the situation. Lloyd George nodded, unsure whether Orlando was being sarcastic or sincere. Rarely was it ever possible to discern Orlando's true intentions, but the Italian Premier seemed especially slippery lately. Mr. President, perhaps it will be best to ask Mr. Wilson what he thinks. Walter Cameron's request was noble, if somewhat naive. Woodrow Wilson was unlikely to be capable of making any decision at all at this point, certainly not one of such monumental importance as to who would succeed him in his duties at London. Did you hear the latest bulletin from Washington? William Randolph Hearst asked the room. My reporters tell me that Mr. Thomas Marshall is ready to assume the President's responsibilities, at least until our President's term ends. Is there a precedent for serving as a caretaker President? Walter Cameron asked. Not as far as I am aware, gentlemen, Hurst replied, but I have it on good authority that the presidency is the last thing that Thomas Marshall wants. Oliver Flanagan took a long drag on his cigarette and looked around the small room. The six of them were here, all gathered for an informal meeting where, hopefully, it would be decided what should be done about the delegate presidential situation. Next door was Wilson, convalescing in bed, unable to take visitors. Edward House was permanently at his bedside, and both Secretary of State Lansing and General Tasker Howard Bliss had travelled to Warsaw. Teddy Roosevelt continued to pace up and down this small room. He knew that his health had not been stellar over the previous months, but he was at least in control of his faculties, which was more than could be said for the incapacitated Wilson. Gentlemen, what we need is a leader to channel the wishes of the American delegation. I will serve willingly as that figurehead. Roosevelt said. Walter Cameron then made a face. Roosevelt's monopolising of the American delegation was exactly what he had feared. Before he could have a chance to speak, Joseph Zahn intervened. Mr. President, please do not take offence, but I fear that your leadership of our delegation may prove polarising. I am quite willing to support your leadership, but I believe your leadership of our delegation will benefit from drawing on the firm abilities of two other delegates, preferably one from each side of the ideological or political fence. Roosevelt scoffed. Mr. Zahn, I'm afraid I do not follow. The last thing America needs is for its voice to be divided at a time like this. Bruce Pug then interjected. Perhaps Mr. Zahn is on to something, Mr. President. After all, one could hardly call Mr. Wilson's leadership particularly well-organized or unanimous. Maybe what America needs is several voices cooperating together. Walter Cameron then got his chance to speak. While Mr. Pug and I have rarely seen eye to eye, I commend him for his foresight here. Mr. President, we are willing to defer to your wisdom and experience as a leader, but I believe it would be wrong to pass the leadership of our delegation from one president to another. Roosevelt sighed. Very well, gentlemen, what do you propose? If Mr. Pug will allow me to venture an opinion, Walter Cameron replied, I would like to recommend him as an advisor. Bruce Pug, evidently taken aback, then said, Mr. Cameron, you do me a great honour. Alas, I cannot accept this honour unless you agree to stand by my side. 
Together, we will be in an unequaled position to lead this American delegation towards peace. Oliver Flanagan then spoke up. It seems that Mr. Pogue and Mr. Cameron will be advising Mr. Roosevelt. Will our beleaguered president accept this arrangement? The real question, Mr. Flanagan, Cameron said, is whether Mr. House will be convinced. If he is, then he will be the best candidate for presenting the arrangement to poor Mr. Wilson. A remarkable arrangement, gentlemen, Joseph Zahn said. Perhaps if we succeed, we might actually be in a position to finish this blasted peace treaty with a vanquished foe before the end of the year. The rain had abated for the last few days, and the streets of Warsaw seemed strangely calm and beautiful. It was almost as though war had never touched the city. The old town marketplace in the oldest and most cultured part of the city hosted the grand procession, a large open-air ceremony, with the top table containing the leaders of France flanked by the leaders of the new Polish Republic dominated the scene. The area was cordoned off to protect the delegates from the enthusiastic crowds, who mostly watched with eager anticipation, waving flags and singing the Polish anthem. It was quite a sight to behold. Below the top table were several round tables arranged in a certain hierarchy. White tablecloths adorned each table, and flags had been inserted into small holes to denote which national delegate was to sit where. Above their heads, a gazebo fluttered in the gentle breeze, just in case the rains arrived. But for now, Polish weather was holding out. "'Well, Mr. Shear, this is quite something,' generous Dinglebrush exclaimed to the Alsatian delegate. Charles Shear nodded with some apprehension. It was just his luck to be seated next to this bumbling Belgian officer. Evidently, they were thought of as the least important of the delegates present, for their table was near the back of the arrangement. Seated at Shear's table, but engrossed in a conversation of their own, was the Siamese delegate Prince Sharoon, and Makino Nabuaki, the Japanese foreign minister. Were these two Orientals even sending soldiers for this cause? Charles Shear was not sure, but he had been informed that an Alsatian Tiger Brigade had been formed, some 500 men strong. A few days before, during a private conversation, Poincaré had marvelled to Shear at the enthusiasm of countrymen in Alsace-Lorraine for the task, and Shear had awkwardly smiled in response. It was common knowledge that Poincaré had worked behind the scenes to undermine Charles Shear's position. Still, it was impressive that Alsatians and Lorrainers had volunteered in such numbers, but Charles Shear would have preferred if they hadn't been folded into the larger French contingent that made up the bulk of the intervention. Mr. Shear, are you aware that I was nominated as the second-in-command for this incredible adventure into Bolshevik Red Russia? Alas, due to my club foot, I was unable to command. Charles Shear suppressed a snigger before saying, Monsieur Dinglebrush, if you'll excuse me, I wish to converse with some of my peers before the ceremony begins. It was a fair enough excuse. The presentation was not due to begin for another 30 minutes or so. So there was no reason to stay here at the back of the gallery with no one for company but this Belgian buffoon until it did. Shear made his way towards the Dominions, who were well represented indeed. Mr. Robotnik, I am not quite sure I follow. Are you meaning to suggest that you do not support Polish independence? Lady Nora Chalk was visibly shocked. She was seated with the Romanian, the Russian and the Swiss delegate. At her table. Not at all, madam, Dmitry Robotnik replied. I merely regret the tone used in the recent Polish Borders Treaty. It made use of a tone which, I fear, undermined Russian freedom of action and threatened my country's sovereignty. Oh, do settle down, Dmitry, Yuan Bratianu said from the other side of the table. Thousands of Europeans have travelled all this way to bail you and your hapless countrymen out. I hardly think you need to fuss over the tone of some unrelated treaty at a time like this. One may be tempted to interpret your attention to detail as ungratefulness. A stunned silence came over the table. They were, like that of Shear and Dinglebrush, positioned a little further back from the front than they were probably happy with, but they were at least further forward than that table behind them. 
Bratianu was feeling particularly emboldened, though, since Romania had contributed nearly 8,000 volunteers, and President Marshal Ferdinand Foch had personally congratulated him for it. The sense of importance had evidently gone straight to his head. Bratianu puffed lethargically on his cigarette, a cloud of cigarette smoke apparently always hovering over him. Ridiculous that Romania should be seated so far back. We provided the greater amount of volunteers per population. Did you know that? The entirety of Europe knows that, Mr. Bratianu, Dmitri Robotnik said, adding with some venom. I hardly know that you have enough soldiers left to illegally occupy the Transylvania, with all the men you're sending to my country. Felix Kalender, also seated at their table, coughed and choked loudly on the drink he had chosen to take at that exact moment. There were some moments where mediation simply would not cut it. Bratiano had the unique ability to make himself despised wherever he went, so it seemed. It was as though the Romanian premier enjoyed rubbing people up the wrong way. Mr. Robotnik, Bratianu said, I hardly need to remind you of the service which my countrymen are doing for you. Perhaps you would not take such a tone with me if you knew what Romanian soldiers are capable of. Robotnik replied with some relish, Oh, trust me, Your Excellency, if your men make as good account of themselves in Russia as they did in the recent war, I believe my country will be safe indeed. Bratianu could not tell whether Robotnik was being sarcastic or serious, so he abruptly changed the subject. Miss Chuck, tell me, how are matters progressing in Budapest? You are ruled by a Hasburg now, is that uh, correct? Lady Nora Chuck took one look at Bratianu, then one look at Robotnik, then spoke to Felix Kalender, sat opposite her. Mr. Kalender, I believe it is not too late to grab one more drink before the festivities begin. Would you like to do me the honour? Kalender couldn't help but jump out of his seat. It would be my honour, my lady, the Swiss man said. As they walked away, arm in arm, they could hear Robotnik and Bratianu arguing about the finer points of pan-Slavism. Some conversations were best avoided, like the plague. The table where the Dominion delegates were seated now loomed into view. Mr. Lind, do you rate Canada's justice system? Sir Robert Borden asked. I'm afraid I've not had the pleasure of studying it, Mr. Premier, though of course the exploits of the late Justice Joseph Doherty were renowned in Newfoundland. This was the answer Borden was looking for, and he smiled. Mr. Borden, Arthur McCallville asked. Have you had the opportunity, yourself, to make use of the extensive fishing facilities at St. John's? I do believe you'll find no pastime more tranquil and rewarding than a good day's spent fishing. The three men were relaxed and well-oiled with vodka. It was late in the afternoon and this trip to Poland gave them all a chance to escape from the suffocating confines of the London Conference. At their Dominion's table also sat the South African Louis Botha. Have you had the pleasure of speaking with General McKay? Louis Botha asked. He seems in very good spirits, which is a good sign. The Australian veteran of Gallipoli had been nominated to lead these multinational forces into the Russian countryside. In previous weeks, David McKay had aroused a great deal of enthusiasm for a better deal in Russia, and he seemed like the ideal candidate to command there. It is a good thing that an official of the wide family of Dominions has been nominated for such a task, Botha said. I believe he will be an excellent representative of our empire family. I must say I have been greatly impressed by the answering of so many countrymen to the call of Russian freedoms. I only hope that the Russian people return the favour in future with a firm alliance. I believe Russia will be a worthwhile friend, Sir Robert Borden replied. You must recall how peaceful the world was from 1907, when our Entente solved decades of Anglo-Russian competition. Another such agreement is by far the best way to guarantee peace in the world. Suddenly, a stranger from outside their table loomed into view. Ah, gentlemen, exclaimed a flustered Janoris Dinglebush. I'm honoured to make your acquaintance. I was wondering if you'd seen any sign of my friend Charles Shear. He left my table a short while ago and I have not seen him since. The presentation is due to begin soon and I do not wish him to miss it. Borden blinked several times and Arthur McCallville intervened. I'm sure he will turn up soon, Mr. Dinglebrush. Perhaps he is just getting a drink? Capital, capital, excellent idea. I will go and look for him there, Dinglebrush said, 
and began to walk away before abruptly returning and startling Owen Lind as he placed his hand on his shoulder. By the way, gentlemen, Dinglebrush began, did you know that I was nominated to serve as the second in command of this great military adventure? Had to turn them down, unfortunately, due to my club foot. Yes, of course, Louis Botha said. How could we forget? Your military exploits are... legendary. Well, well, do not do me too great an honour, Mr. Botha. It is an honour enough to be in the presence of such an esteemed statesman of the Boer people. Louis Botha's demeanour suddenly changed, as he willingly absorbed the compliment. You are a flatterer, Mr. Dinglebrush. Oh, nonsense, Dinglebrush replied, slapping Owen Lind on the back as he did so. The drink flew out of Lind's hand and went all over Botha's overcoat. Suddenly, Botha's demeanour changed once again. Why, you idiotic, jumped-up little... Ah, gentlemen, Dinglebrush said, walking swiftly away. It has been a pleasure. A bell was sounded from the front of the room, and all eyes turned to the top table. Just as the ceremony was about to begin, a figure shuffled in between McCallville and Lind. It was Charles Shear. Permit me to stay at your table, gentlemen, and drinks will be on me for the evening, the Alsatian said. The two Newfoundlanders looked at one another and grinned. Charles Shear was more agile than they thought. Evidently, he had sneaked right past Dinglebrush. We just encountered your friend, whispered McCallville. Oh dear, Shear said. Missed me, did he? I confess, hiding under the table nearby wasn't my proudest achievement, but sometimes, desperate times call for desperate measures. Owen Lind laughed out loud, and Louis Botha proposed a quick toast. Gentlemen, the South African said with a whisper, to desperate times and desperate measures. At the top table, the French Premier and President were now seated, with Polish General Pilsudski and Premier Paderewski beside them. David McKay, the Australian commander, was sandwiched between the two delegations. It was a truly multinational affair, as though the nations of the world had finally banded together against Bolshevism. Nothing less than international cooperation, Foch had insisted, would defeat the evil ideology. Now it was time to see if he was right. Silence fell over the open square. Even the masses who had gathered outside of the barricades made not a sound. Paderewski rose from his feet and found that those delegates and VIPs seated in front of him and his countrymen standing beyond were hanging on his every word. Delegates, friends, countrymen and Democrats, it brings me great pleasure to welcome you all here today to our Council for Russian Freedoms. When this body was incepted a month ago, its purpose was clear, to free Russia from the Bolshevik chains that disadvantage and destroy her people. Today, after so many weeks of negotiation and hard work, it is fair to say that we have demonstrated a unanimous desire to fulfil the goal of this council. This was not, of course, a mission that only a few contributed to. Those delegates and supporters seated in front of me and my countrymen, those of you that stand shoulder to shoulder in this historic market square, your love of Poland, of freedom and of democracy, has made all of this possible. From now on, we say no more to Bolshevism. We declare an end to waiting for someone else to fix the problems of this world. We announce that this war was not fought for nothing, and we insist that never again should true friends of democracy ever feel hopeless or abandoned. Today it is a moment of great significance, for it is a moment when Poland fights for Russia. We know that many will decry this act. Russia must pay for her crimes against Poland, they might say. Russia deserves to endure these terrible trials, others claim. Yet, in my heart of hearts, gentlemen, for as long as I have attended the peace conferences in Paris or in London, I have learned that all men are worth saving. It is quite a thing to declare, but if this wretched war can bring us anything, we hope it will bring us solidarity, and not among a certain social strata or class, but among all nations, whose people will fight for what is good and right. Today we begin this fight, and I look forward to the conclusion of that fight, when we return to this place in God's good time and proclaim the victory of humanity over the forces of evil. Thank you. Paderewski sat down to a chorus of applause and rapturous cheers. Evidently, many Poles behind them believed in the cause, and next to stand up was the grizzled general Pilsudski. A hush came over the audience once more. You know me, gentlemen, Pilsudski's gruff voice boomed. 
You know that I am an honest man and an honest patriot. I do not scheme. I do not politic. What I do is fight. I am like Poland. Tenacious, passionate and powerful. I do not tire easily and I do not give up. This, friends, is our moment to demonstrate that Poland is not yet lost. But it is more than that. As my friend Paderewski said, we fight in the name of our old foe, in Russia. Yet we remember that in Russia lives people. People who deserve a chance to be happy and to be free. I ask you all, do those descendants of those that wronged us deserve to be wronged also? Do these Russian people deserve to be condemned to suffer, to starve, to have the lifeblood of their nation squeezed out, as we did in 1795? At that, a resounding no emerged from all around, and it became clear from the sound just how many people were present for the procession. Pilsudski continued, I knew I was right to put my faith in all of you. I am at home with every one of you. And now, like I put my faith in you, the world puts its faith in all of us. Whether we come from this great country, revitalised after years of struggle, or whether we come from our vibrant ally in France, or some far-flung dominion of the British Empire, whose name might escape me, but whose deeds invoke wonder in us all. Today we say that nationality, creed, faith and wealth has no bearing on our camaraderie. We are all united in this cause, to end the suffering of that Russian nation, to put to bed the ruinous ideology which has lied and deceived its way into the hearts and minds of so many Russians. These Russians will be cured, not killed, but for those unique few irredeemable manipulators who have led their countrymen off the cliff of despair, we bring you a message of wrath and destruction. We bring you no quarter, only punishment and consequence for your actions. We hope you are ready to face us because we have been positively itching to face you. Thank you. The applause was even louder now, and Premier Poincaré stood up. The applause took a little bit longer to die down, likely because the citizens who were surrounding this procession had less ingrained respect for someone who was not of their country. Still though, once Poincaré began to speak, the manners of those assembled shone through, and Poincaré was given the floor. My friends, I thank you for receiving us here and now. Unfortunately, my Polish is not up to much, so I will speak slowly in my own language to allow my interpreter to follow my words. Indeed, much has been said already about why we are here, what has brought Frenchmen away from the cause of concluding the war with their German foe and to this cultured Polish capital. The answer is simple, humanity. It is our humanity that separates us from the Bolsheviks. It was our humanity that facilitated the miracle on the Marne in 1914. And it is our humanity now that distinguishes those willing to help his fellow man from those willing to stand by and do nothing. Poland has never done nothing. My friends Pilsudski and Paderewski have assured me of that. But let me tell you something about France. You know that a century ago, an emperor of the French marched here. His message was freedom, but the cause was too great even for him to manage. He was betrayed, friends, by lesser men. In this great cause to create a better world, Napoleon Bonaparte failed and we have been living with the consequences ever since. Gentlemen, citizens, people of the world, today, we must not fail. Lest in a century's time, men will gather on a stage like this, and speak of those brave visionaries who promised much, but were ultimately overwhelmed. The shame of such a defeat would be impossible to bear, but the failing of the Russian people would be something more painful entirely. To the people of Russia, those that are able to listen now, our hearts beat as one for you and your freedom. Soon we will walk hand in hand down the gilded roads of civilization. Soon we will forget what it meant to struggle and hate your neighbour. Until that day comes, though, friends, first we must work hard. One last push will bring our nations to the point of success. One last push, and Russia's freedom will be in our hands. Thank you. Whistling and cheering followed, and Poincaré was visibly moved. Perhaps he had been a bit bothered to not have been saved for last, but he had certainly done his finest work. He suspected that Foch would not be able to top that speech, but Poincaré also found that he had been caught up in the moment. A stirring speech, Your Excellency, General Mackay whispered to him. Tears formed in Poincaré's eyes. After waiting for the applause to die down, the President Marshal got up to speak. For about ten seconds, he smiled at the people gathered before he finally spoke. It brings me great joy and pride to see this vision of mine come to life. My friends, when I imagined Warsaw hosting this expedition, it was a vision which, I confess, 
I did not have the capacity properly to do justice to. It never occurred to me that such an outpouring of enthusiasm and patriotism would take shape. It is not a wonder that Poland has not been lost, with citizens like yourselves counted among the sea of proud Poles before me. It is also no great mystery why I advocated so enthusiastically for a defence arrangement with Poland. There was no firmer ally, no more loyal friend than Poland to France, I said. But now I speak to all nationalities and peoples. Many of you have come a great distance to be here, and you still have much further to go. I will not pretend the journey will be easy, nor will I pretend that it is always glamorous. Yet, as the weather bites at you, as hunger occasionally gnaws, as your mood is preyed upon by the opportunistic, I want you to remember what you hear today. I want you to remember that we are all comrades in arms, and that our cause is a just one. When the great fortress of Verdun seemed lost, it was supplied by one single route, which came to be known as the Sacred Way. We are travelling the Sacred Way today, my friends. We are travelling out of the comfort zones and into the fire of war. Yet we go there for good reason, and our consciences are clear. The man to my left, Mr. General David McKay, is one such man whose conscience is clear. He led men ashore during the Gallipoli campaign. He served his country in politics. He defended Australia when it mattered most. Mr. McKay is here as the father of two children because he knows that our future is too valuable to leave in the hands of well-meaning platitudes and gestures. Action is what will heal the Russian wound, and today we take action. I invite now the Archbishop of Warsaw to bless our expedition. An old man in traditional papal garb strolled onto the stage and began loudly reciting several Latin prayers. The non-Catholic delegates seated in front of the prelate maintained a respectful disposition. There was no need to cause or take offence at a time like this. As he finished his blessing, Foch then assumed his old position. My friends, there is so much I could say to you today, so much I could say to inspire you, or perhaps much I could say to prepare you for what is ahead. Instead, I simply offer my sincere thanks. The bulk of the military forces are present today because you have volunteered. No government has conscripted you, and no agency has compelled you. You are here because you believe in the task ahead of you, and the tens of thousands of soldiers who will shortly embark for the front carry with them the promise of a new life for the millions of Russian souls that you save. I am but your humble servant, the first citizen of the French Republic, but you, gentlemen, are men of a different calibre altogether. You answered the call when it mattered most. Not the Russian people, not historians a century from now, not posterity, and certainly not your own countrymen back home, will ever forget your brave sacrifice. You march tomorrow into this strange world of Bolshevik Russia and out of the sumptuous hospitality of our Polish friends. You make history with this march, just as you make the actual future of the Russian people possible. Thank you. An eruption of applause moved across the seated delegates who stood up and the off-duty soldiers and citizens outside the barricades added to the eruption. Smiling faces could be easily picked out among the crowds. Foch sat down next to Poincaré. Excellent job, President Marshal, Poincaré said. Monsieur Poincaré, Foch said, I really believe that soon we will be able to free the Russian people from this terrible fate. Do you believe it too? Poincaré nodded enthusiastically. I was not sure if you heard, Mr. President, but Pavel Lobova was found strangled in his jail cell in Paris. Foch took a moment to respond. A shame, the President Marshal said. It would have been better to execute him today, before this fantastic crowd. Indeed, Poincaré said. What a scene that would be. David McKay couldn't help overhearing their conversation. He was horrified. Did these two men, these two leaders of France, truly want what was best for Europe and democracy? Or were they only a few terrible decisions away from returning her to her medieval past? Had he truly gotten himself into something awful? Would he ever return from this Russian quagmire? The mention of Napoleon made David McKay nervous. Napoleon had been the greatest general that ever lived, but Russia had been his undoing. While he liked to pride himself on his skill, McKay wasn't sure if he measured up to the standard set by a Bonaparte. If that genius had been unable to tame Russia, did he and his tens of thousands in this new grand armée really stand a chance? Either way, whatever the future held in store, he was committed to the cause. This mission would either make him the most famous Australian who ever lived, or would prevent him from ever seeing his children again. Not much of a grey area then, McKay thought. But then, the greatest risks 
often presented the greatest rewards. There was no reward more noble than liberating an entire nation from Bolshevism's ills. Tomorrow, the next day of the rest of his life, would begin. And that, history friends and delegates, is the end of the episode. Here we have watched as the expedition to Russia takes shape, as the London conference ticks by, and as the American delegates work to imagine life without Wilson. Next week we'll examine the consequences of such developments, but we'll also learn something of the fate of General McKay's Russian adventure, since today I'm asking you to vote on it. Yet I'm also asking you to vote on something else. As per the information given by the Austro-German delegation near the beginning of this episode, we learned that Austria and Germany is suffering from acute starvation thanks to the blockade of the Royal Navy, just as it suffered in real life. My question for you is then, what do you propose to do with this blockade? Will you unconditionally end the blockade, continue it as normal, maintain it at half strength, or end it conditionally? And what conditions could you end it on? Well, that is up to you. But make sure you make some kind of suggestion about what Austria and Germany will have to do in return, if you believe a conditional ending of the blockade is a good idea. And if this choice wins, I'll pick what I think is the most logical option. As for the Russian vote, it's up to you to determine its fate, and we have a few options to choose from too. Will McKay's expedition be completely successful, thereby eradicating Bolshevism? Will it be a failure, resulting in the destruction and retreat of McKay's forces? Will they capture Moscow, but fail to eradicate the threat? Will they endure what Napoleon endured? Will they enjoy moderate success, and establish a permanent democratic Russian state, based out of southern Russia and the Crimea in the process? If you've forgotten these options, make sure you have a read over them when you're making your choice, and make sure that you do vote, delegates, because it is the best way to ensure you have a say in how this story progresses. Now that's going to do it for today, dear delegates, but until next time, my name is Zach, and I've been your delegation master. Thanks for listening and for playing, and I'll be seeing you all next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 